Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm your guest host, Emmy Vadness, filling in for Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is healing pain. My guest is Dr. David Hanscom, who is author of Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, and Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with a Spine Surgeon's Advice. Dr. Hanscom is an orthopedic complex spine deformity surgeon who quit his surgical practice in 2019 to focus on teaching people how to break loose from the grip of chronic mental and physical pain with and without surgery. His insights arose out of escaping from his own 15-year ordeal with suffering with severe chronic pain. As he began to share his approaches with his patients, a predictable sequence of learning evolved. It's reflected in the self-directed action plan that he created, Direct Your Own Care Journey or the Doc Journey. David is based in the San Francisco Bay Area And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, David. It's such a joy to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Thank you, Amy. I'm excited to be here. As a spine surgeon, you found that many of your patients really healed a very low percentage of the time from their actual reason for having spine surgery in the first place. Well, I came out of my spine fellowship in 1985. It's one of the top spine fellowships in the world. And I came out, like every young surgeon, just on fire to do surgery on anybody I could do surgery on. In fact, I would feel guilty about not finding a reason to do surgery. I was a good surgeon. I was well-trained. But what we weren't taught about any point in my training was about chronic pain. So I spent eight years of my practice in Seattle. We were doing nine times the rate of spine surgery for back pain as any place in the entire country. And I was part of that movement. So I did dozens and dozens of back fusions for back pain. And in 1993, I found found out that the success rate was 22%. I thought it was 90%. And I followed my own patients very carefully, and I was finding out I was struggling. My patients weren't doing as well as I thought they should do. I was doing a definitive operation. I was doing it well. We tried different techniques, and it wasn't really working. So in 1993, when I found out the success rate was like 20, 25%, I just said, done. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I just stopped. I I didn't have a lot of alternatives at the time. But yeah, I just was really zealous. I was an excellent surgeon, worked really hard at it. And the harder I tried treating people's pain with surgery, the worse it got. I really appreciate what you're doing. I have worked as an occupational therapist and an integrative medicine practitioner with people with all sorts of back problems and spine surgeries. And it was sad to see that in some cases, their pain, they would often describe that they would get a new type of pain sometimes from the surgery. Well, that's interesting observation because the data says that If you do any procedure in any part of the body in the presence of untreated chronic pain, that you'll make the pain worse 40 to 60% of the time or create new pain in a different part of the body 40 to 60% of the time. Because here's the problem. Chronic pain is a neurological issue. It's defined out of Chicago as an embedded memory 
that becomes connected to more and more life events and the memory can't be erased. So it's a memorized set of circuits in your brain. And when those aren't calmed down, you start simply plugging in body parts. So for example, if you have chronic neck pain and have a hernia repair, which is a pretty simple operation, the data clearly shows that you can induce chronic pain at the hernia site 40 to 60% of the time. And 5 to 10% of the time, it can become permanent. So if I had a complication right in spine surgery of a nerve root deficit 5 to 10% of the time, I would not be in business. Chronic pain in some ways is a complication of surgery. It's almost a worse complication than a cut nerve root because it doesn't end. And you yourself had your own experience, maybe to help us all as a, being a wounded healer, of 15 years of your own severe chronic pain. Right. I, in deference to my colleagues, I would give them a lot of credit for doing the best they can do. I was in the same boat they were. <clears throat> I was taught to do surgery. I did it. It wasn't working very well, but I wasn't taught anything differently. So right around 1990, I was driving across the 520 bridge in Seattle and I went from a fearless surgeon. I mean, my thing was bring it on. I, I was at the, I was an excellent surgeon, trained at a top fellowship. And my, my mindset was just bring it on. I could take any amount of stress. I know about stress. I'm good at it. And so what I was really doing as a master is suppressing stress, which turns out to be a really bad idea. So one night on the 520 bridge in Seattle, I was, it was about 10 o'clock at night. And I had just run a spine meeting and I had a panic attack. And I swear that I did not know what anxiety was until that very moment. I read about it. I heard about it. I was going so fast that I was really outrunning my anxiety. And I went, to, I went into a panic attack at age 37 years old. And for those of you that have never had a panic attack, my heart started to race. I was sweating. I felt re really, I felt, I thought I was going to die. So I'm going 60 miles an hour at 10 o'clock at night, coming down the ramp of a bridge. And I just thought it was over. Well, from that moment on, for the next 15 years, I developed 17 additional symptoms, mental and physical. I did not know about the physiological nature of anxiety. And to go from a literally a fearless spine surgeon to crippling anxiety in one day was unbelievable. In that journey, you discovered what helped and what didn't help <laughs> with healing. Can you share... Because that really brought you to your back in control book. Now, the neuroscience of chronic disease, not just chronic pain, not just anxiety, turned out that all mental and physical disease has the same common origin. So it's a, what it is, the essence of disease is ongoing exposure to fight or flight chemistry. In other words, you have this threat response and your whole body's fired up. And so I was in this fired up state for 15 solid years and nobody could tell me what happened to me including myself. Um, I went to psychotherapy for 13 solid years, once or twice a week, which is a lot of psychotherapy. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. So the, how the process evolved, it came out of it, started to come out of it about 13 years later, sort of by accident. We can talk about that in a second. Then over the next six months, I came out of it completely. I still didn't know what happened. I still don't know how I got into it. I didn't know how, how I came out of it or why I came out of it. Then in 2009, I heard a lecture by Dr. Howard Schumer out of Detroit, who wrote a book called Unlearn Your Pain. And he gave a lecture about all these symptoms that occur <clears throat> with this whole chronic pain thing. And so my wife and I are sitting there listening to Howard um, give this talk. And my wife goes up to him 
And afterwards he goes, you know, I have this friend of mine who has this, this, is this, and this. So Howard listed 30 different symptoms of chronic pain or fired up nervous system. And Howard looks at it and goes, you mean your husband? <laughs> she goes, well, yeah. So at that moment, when I heard his talk, all of a sudden things started to click in the gear. Then the last five years, we become much more exposed to the neuroscience, which, by the way, has been there. I just was not aware of it. So now we know really clearly the whole origin of chronic disease, including chronic pain. We actually know the principles behind the solutions. So by understanding the problem really clearly gives us hope for actually solving the problem. So as my, we watch hundreds and hundreds of patients get better, and not only do they get better, including myself, they thrive. So after enduring 17 different mental and physical symptoms for that period of time, they're all gone, every one of them. So let me work backwards just for a second explaining what the symptoms were, because it's all from a common source of a fired-up neurochemical response. So what happened, I had migraine headaches, my ears were rain, skin rashes were coming and going all over my body, my feet were burning, I had stomach issues, I had neck pain, back pain, also had severe anxiety, depression, and was called an obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an extremely severe anxiety disorder. Um, and so at those, they're gone. They, they're simply gone. I don't, I have none of those symptoms. And if I continue to practice the tools I teach my patients, I do great. If I quit, by the way, practicing what I preach, which is easy to do, by the way, is, um, these little skin rashes pop up, pop up in the back of my wrist or I quit sleeping as well or my feet start to burn. And so I now look at these physical symptoms as manifestations of anxiety because it actually is the same thing. So it turns out anxiety is not psychological. It's actually not responsive to mental rational interventions. So it turns out that the talk therapy for 13 years is actually counterproductive because from a brain standpoint, my brain was focused on the problem, not the solution. So it's a solvable problem. All of them. I mean, my symptoms are gone. And you might say, well, that's crazy. I mean, how can you have 17 different symptoms, mental and physical, and have them all disappear? Well, when your body's in fight or flight, every cell in your body is bathed in this chemical environment. Each cell, each organ system is going to have its own set of symptoms. So that's why it's all, as one of my friends says, it's all the same soup. So we now know the neurochemistry of chronic disease, all chronic disease. And so I'm just one example of hundreds of patients that are that not only get better, but they thrive. We also know that the impact of chronic pain is actually equivalent to having terminal cancer. So several research papers have, just, have demonstrated that the quality, the impact on your quality of life suffering from chronic pain is similar to terminal cancer, except it's worse. Because at least with cancer, as bad as it is, I'm not trying to minimize that suffering, is at least you know what the diagnosis is. In chronic pain, nobody can tell you the diagnosis. But the other factor with cancer, there's an endpoint. You either get better or you don't. This sounds sort of harsh, but in chronic pain, you, you don't know. You're stuck in this morass of unknowingness, and you don't know if there's ever a way out, and certainly you don't know when, and so people lose hope. So the impact is huge, and it's not being treated well in our country at all. And the patients of mine that get better point out that the answers are actually disturbingly simple. And I actually quit my surgical practice to do this because 
is watching hundreds of patients go to pain-free. When I say pain-free, in other words, they don't, pain is life. I mean, it comes and goes, but they're not in this chronic grip of anxiety and depression, all these other symptoms. So I've watched hundreds of patients do that with essentially no risk, minimal resources. And I'm watching all sorts of patients being badly damaged by spine surgery on normally aging spines. The success rate of a spine fusion for back pain is 22%. 22%. The chance of making you worse is about 40%. So we actually have double the chance of making you worse than we do on making you better. And so it turns out that we're doing spine surgery on anxiety. And again, I want to just keep rephrasing this. Anxiety is simply an activated threat response. It's a physiological state. It is not a psychological diagnosis. Many people deal with pain, like you say, emotional and physical pain throughout the day. What exactly is chronic pain? What happens is like a car alarm going off that you can't stop. So you need pain to survive. People that are born without pain fibers don't survive past about 10 or 15 years old. It's a protective mechanism. It's a gift. It's a survival reaction. And so pain isn't the problem. It's the anxiety. In other words, you have pain just a signal. It could be too bright, too loud, too sharp, too dull, too hot, whatever it is. Pain is a signal. It's your body's response to that signal. That's the problem. So again, once you set, once your body senses danger or threat, you have your circumstances or threats. Then you have your nervous system that processes these signals. Then you have your physiological response. So when you're under sustained threat or sustained danger, in other words, your body's getting cues of threat instead of safety, then your body is in sustained fight or flight and you feel anxious, upset, uncomfortable. And that state of mind is what's intolerable. I had four patients a few years ago within two weeks, all males, all between 45 and 60, all very, very successful. All of them had chronic pain. And I looked at my spine questionnaire. It was interesting. They all had actually had surgical lesions, things I could have done surgery on. But I asked them this question. I said, look, if I could do surgery and just get rid of your leg pain um, or you live with the anxiety that you have for the rest of your life and probably get worse versus getting rid of the anxiety and, and living with the pain, all four of them said, I can't deal with the anxiety. I can sort of deal with the pain, but I can't deal with the anxiety. And so it turns out that on the spine questionnaire that I gave them, that they were putting 10 out of 10 on anxiety, depression, and irritability. They were totally stressed out. They were in job issues. They had kids that were getting sick, seriously sick. They had spousal issues, lot job issues. They had lots of stress. See, people keep thinking stress is a psychological construct. It's not. Stress is just a threat. So stress isn't the problem. It's your stress response that's the problem. So these people were, so I gave them a choice of getting rid of their anxiety or getting rid of their leg pain with surgery. Every one of them said emphatically, I can't deal with the anxiety. So the whole process of dealing with it turns out we're doing spine surgery on anxiety. And so as we've learned to teach people how to develop a working relationship with anxiety, not only does their anxiety drop, i.e. the threat response, but all the other symptoms disappear because the body's physiology is now normalized. And what did you discover in your journey when you were dealing with your own chronic pain and anxiety that helped you? Well, it was an accident. So again, in deference to my colleagues, I would have zero insight into the stuff at all because we're not trained this way. So I learned through a personal harsh experience, mostly by making mistakes about how to get out of this hole. So 
I finally learned anxiety is a result of a threat, not the cause. I cannot understand how I could become a fearless spine surgeon and go from crippling anxiety in a day and then not come out of it for years. But it turns out that for humans, that anxiety is simply a sensation generated by your survival response. It's the same response that my cat has. But my cat doesn't have language. She doesn't put a word on this response. She just does it. So when the threat passes, she lays down and takes a nap. Humans have a major problem called consciousness. So we have language and concepts that my cat doesn't have. So she has a consciousness for survival as far as threats, but she doesn't have language. So what happens is that turns out that thoughts create the same response to the same threat, unpleasant thoughts, have the same response as a physical threat. What's even worse is that repressed thoughts are actually more of a threat than expressed. And what got me in deep trouble was I was a master at suppressing stress. So I just said, bring it on. And so I was incredibly good at suppressing stress. And people started asking, well, how does an orthopedic spine surgeon know about anxiety? Well, guess what? In the world of medicine, being a surgeon is more stressful than being a dermatologist, even though I almost went into that, into that field. And then being a spine surgeon is maybe one of the top stress levels in the planet because people expect perfection. The surgeons expect for perfection. And when things don't go well in spine surgery, the results are absolutely devastating. So I would put spine surgery at the top 5% of all stressful professions. So I know a lot about stress. I know way more about anxiety than I ever wanted to. I, again, I thought it was stress was psychological. I thought anxiety was psychological. If I was feeling nervous or upset, I just thought I was a wimp. So I just doubled down and got really tough. So my nickname in high school was, was the brick. I mean, I thought that was a compliment. And so it turned out probably cost me marriage. And I was a brick. I would not allow unpleasant sensations in my body at all. So when I had this panic attack at age 37, it was like the top blowing off of a pressure cooker. It was brutal, unbelievable. And it got way worse. And by seven years later, I was um, full, developed a full-blown obsessive compulsive disorder, which is manifest by repetitive, intrusive, disturbing thoughts. And by 2002, I was suicidal. I mean, I have 19 medical colleagues there from suicide. And as I go through this process very carefully, talk to people, I'm now convinced that these unpleasant repetitive thoughts, that's the research term for it, URTs, unpleasant repetitive thoughts, are the source of a tremendous amount of anxiety that's just unbearable. And so I was, I was almost, I was suicidal. I was actually started to commit the deed. I was going to be number 20, again, 20 medical colleagues, not even friends and acquaintances that are dead from suicide. And it's that self-critical perfectionistic voice that just drives you down the hole. What did you find that helped you out of that hole? So I read a book called Feeling Good by David Burns, who I've gotten to know personally. He lives not too far from me in the Palo Alto area. And he wrote a book called Feeling Good. And it's a wonderful book. And I started to do what he talked about, was called expressive writing. He, he recommends what's called a three-column technique where you write down the unpleasant thought, then you categorize it into one of ten cognitive distortions, then you write down the more appropriate thought. So I thought it was the book, which is a great book. It turns out there are hundreds and hundreds of research papers on what's called expressive writing. So it turns out humans can't escape their thoughts. It creates, a, it creates the same threat response. 
So each human being has a certain amount of ongoing threat response, anxiety, based on these thought patterns that you can't escape. So it turns out that expressive writing simply separates you from the thoughts. You can't control them. Remember, it's an unconscious versus conscious mismatch. And so as you do this expressive writing, it simply separates you from the thoughts. Within two weeks after I started the expressive writing, I noticed a shift. Now, this after 15 or 13 years of trying everything you can imagine, medications, counseling, psychotherapy, everything you can imagine. And for the first time, within the first two weeks, things started to shift. Six weeks, things were quite a bit better. Then about six months later, I ran across my anger issues, which I thought I was fine. I, my, my personal self-image was I was pretty cool. I mean, if you're a brick, you don't get upset about anything. So I had no connection to how angry I really was. And when I processed those anger issues, by the way, very badly at the time, I got through it. Within six weeks, all my symptoms started to disappear. Turns out anxiety and anger are the same thing. So anxiety is an unpleasant sensation, and you're motivated to solve it. When you can't solve it, you're trapped. And so your body doubles down and kicks in more stress chemicals, and you become angry. So anger and anger are the same thing, except anger is more intense. And Dr. Sarno, years ago, called it when you're trapped by pain, like any circumstance, he called it rage. So your body chemistry is way off. And so my process that got me in deep trouble was suppressed anger. So with with all my patients to get better is that expressive writing is always a first step. The top psychologists in the world have not found an alternative to expressive writing because you can't escape your consciousness, but you can separate from it. So everything else in my process, which is, again, just one of many, um, it always starts with expressive writing. It's the only one mandatory step. And so as you separate from your thoughts, then you have a choice. And so what you're doing, you're trying to create a little bit of a space. Instead of being stress, automatic re- survival response, it's stress, a little bit of a space, and then you create a different response. And with repetition, you actually change the structure of your brain. So your responses, your automatic, automatic responses become more pleasant and enjoyable than automatic survival. So it was completely an accident in 2002 when I started the expressive writing. And again, I didn't figure out till maybe five years ago about why it worked. But it turns out there's over 1,200 research papers and growing documenting the effect, effectiveness of expressive writing. But guess what? I never heard of it. No, not medical school, residency, fellowship, private practice. Nobody ever told me about expressive writing. Do you think that that is part of the mind-body separation in healthcare and in medicine? Yes. It's a very long story, but there's a model of treatment I'm putting out there. I'm using the term dynamic healing. Remember, we talked about this earlier, that every living creature's does the same thing. We have our signals from the environment or stresses or threats. We have our nervous system that interprets all these signals. Again, thoughts are the major one that actually drive humans, really torture humans. Then you have have the state of your body's physiology, either fight or flight or safety. So the essence of chronic disease, mental and physical, is sustained exposure to threat physiology. The essence of healing is using tools to create safety. So with dynamic healing, you have three different portals that you use every day. It's a skill set where there's ways of actually dropping out of fight or flight into safety by breath work, 
by rubbing your forehead, humming certain types of music. And what happens, you're actually directly stimulating what's called the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the 10th cranial nerve. It goes to every internal organ in your body. It's called the parasympathetic nervous system, and it's anti-inflammatory. It slows down your metabolism and improves the function over your gut. So you have direct ways of, of, I call it the output or your physiology. Remember, thoughts are sensory input that are unpleasant. Emotions are what you feel. So thoughts are a mental threat. The emotions are your physiology. So I call it the input, the nervous system, and the output. So you can directly affect your body's output with certain techniques. So the middle part, the central nervous system, if you're raised in an, in an abusive environment, which two-thirds of Americans are, by the way, um, your nervous system's hyperactive. You're programmed to look for danger because you lived in a dangerous environment when you were a kid, and so you're on high alert all the time. So the ways you calm a nurse, so it takes less stress to put you in fight or flight. So we can talk about that in a second. There's a tremendous amount of data on what a chaotic childhood does to your nervous system. But things that you can calm it down with is um, diet, anti-inflammatory diet, exercise, very anti-inflammatory, increases the resilience, and sleep. So expressive writing is the number one step. Sleep is number two. Without sleep, nothing really happens without actively sleeping. And then with the nervous system, you can do trauma therapy, which is a very specific type of therapy, since you can't fix a broken nervous system. you got to rebuild it, and you can do that. But that's where an experienced trauma therapist comes into play, and that's where um, I don't do that type of work. And I'll explain one of the principles in a second. But the final phase is the stresses or the input. So, again, stress is not psychological. You have a stress response to threat. So we use the word threat instead of the word stress, okay? So you have, what are you loading in your nervous system? And what are you choosing to hold on to? So for instance, one of the cardinal rules of healing is never discuss your pain. No complaining, no gossiping, no giving unasked for advice, no discussing your medical care, because guess what? It fires up your threat physiology. Cognitive behavioral therapy changes the thought processes. Mindfulness changes you from racing thoughts to a different sensation. In forgiveness, anger, what are you holding on to? So if you're so upset about your parents the way they treated you in your childhood, that's a problem because it keeps your nervous system fired up like your parents are right there in the room with you even still. So again, the problem that we get into with treating chronic disease or we're treating just the symptoms. So mindfulness helps. Trauma therapy helps. Exercise helps. The direct work helps, but nothing works in isolation. It's always a combination approach. So that's the area we get into that all these effective treatments are applied in isolation. And people say, well, I tried mindfulness and it didn't work. Well, the mindfulness helps, then you add on something else. So if you're doing mindfulness, for instance, and not sleeping, that's not going to work. So it's always that combination approach that actually solves a problem. And by the way, it is solvable. It's a great response, and I think it's very helpful for people to know that somebody who is a top spine surgeon in the world uh, experienced their own stress from a very high perfectionistic profession, and then also possibly, it sounds like, recognizing that you weren't helping people the way you really wanted to help them. Do you think that also impacted your stress levels and your pain? 
Right. I mean, the term now for that medicine is called moral injuries because of burnout. So, yeah, doctors have a very high interest. Every one of them has a very high interest in helping their patients. And the business of medicine has somewhat captivated us. They've captured us. They've captured the patients. They've captured us. And so we've turned into an assembly line type approach. And the number one thing, I, I mean, think about this carefully. I mean, any situation in life, whether you're going to build a skyscraper buy a new car, build a house, whatever it is, you you have to learn the variables. You have to understand the problem. So chronic pain is very complicated and is complex. Everybody has a completely different set of variables. And so with the, so we don't have time to talk to you. We don't know you as a patient. We don't know your coping skills. So we're treating just the symptoms. So let's say you have an oil well fire. Okay, you have the oil coming up. It's burning like crazy. I mean, you can't put the oil while fire out with the garden hose. I mean, the fuel keeps coming at you. So there's a very famous paper in 1927 written by Dr. Francis Peabody. It's a transcript of a lecture he gave to medical students back in 1927. His point being, he was very concerned at that point in time about the inference of technology with the patient-doctor relationship. This is 1927, by the way, where we had no technology, relatively speaking. So his point being is that, so Mrs. Jones comes into the hospital with a stomachache. The resident says, you know, Mrs. Jones, we did all these testing. There's nothing wrong. Go home and have a good life. Well, maybe she's going home to an abusive spouse. That's the problem. In other words, so I want to go back to the physiology of pain is that when your body's under fight or flight, your adrenaline's up, cortisol is up, metabolism is up, your inflammatory markers are up. Your body's on fire. I mean, your brain itself is firing off what's called inflammatory cytokines. Your brain itself is sensitized. Your peripheral nerves that conduct the nerves speed the nerve conduction, so you're actually feeling the pain more. So you have to help people calm down. So you say, Mrs. Jones, we found nothing wrong. Go home and have a good life. Well, what happens is that normal threat physiology decreases the blood supply to the gut. So your gut doesn't function correctly. You have stomach pain, even, even though there's, a, quote, nothing there. There's something wrong because your physiology is wrong. 90% of symptoms in medicine, all parts of the body, mental and physical, are from the body's physiology. Medicine has gone to a structural model, which is simply wrong. So we talk about integrated medicine, integrated medicine. So, so to really solve the problem, we're treating just symptoms, but we don't know our patient circumstances. We don't know their stresses. We don't know them as a person. We don't know their coping skills. So what dynamic healing proposes is that we acknowledge the stresses and the coping skills. We help increase the coping skills. We don't get into trying to solve people's problems. They have to figure that out themselves. But once you understand the principles, they can solve their problems. So you have the problem solving. You have the state of your nervous system. You teach them skills to auto-regulate their body's physiology, and they heal. But treating just the symptoms is what we're doing in medicine. But going one step further is that patients don't feel safe with their doctors because we don't know you. We don't know your problems. So we're creating massive life-threatening decisions based on incomplete data. So in addition to not feeling heard, in spine surgery, it's getting worse because we're doing these massive recommendations on the first visit. It's not. It makes no sense. So how can you walk in the room and see an x-ray and decide that x-ray is a cause of pain or not? By the way, um, there's a paper, there's a orthopedic surgeon out of Australia who's documented very clearly 
And I'm not saying we should do orthopedic surgery, but in every part of the body, hips, knees, shoulders, spine, there's actually no data that supports what we do. None. So people say, well, where's the data? Well, we have no data for mainstream medicine. I think integrated medicine is much closer to this process than mainstream medicine. And the problem I'm having now is that when mainstream medicine talks about integrated medicine, there's a bit of a pejorative tone to that. You know, well, that's integrated medicine. That's not for real. Wrong. There's something wrong because your body's physiology is way off. So integrated medicine helps break you back into balance. And my term, by the way, for mainstream medicine right now is more or less disintegrated medicine. We don't have any data. We're doing all these harmful procedures on people without any data. And we're, and we're doing it very efficiently. That is a helpful term, disintegrated medicine. And I agree with you that, that the term integrative medicine is sort of a, mm, a way of trying to basically say that the person is a whole person, mind, body, spirit, and that all these aspects are not separate and that everything in their environment, their relationships, how they feel about themselves, their commute to work, uh, whether they lost a loved one, um, all those factors do play into their own well-being. But you'll have to admit that people tend to think of these things in terms of psychological. But here's the deal. So this is the part that, again, medicine is ignoring the data. It's been extremely well documented that chronic stress actually kills people. So is that psychological? So you have double heart disease, suicide, hypertension, cancer, all these things go up in chronic stress. So one classic example of that is um, in 1962, Dr. Holmes and Reiki out of the University of Washington created a scale called the Holmes-Reiki Stress Scale. It's still on the internet. And so they assign points to different life events, with number one being death of a spouse, death of a child, financial losses, even positive stresses, new marriages, new jobs, new relationships. Those are all stresses. So there's points assigned to all these different stresses. And if a person had 300 points or more, they had an 80% chance of a chronic disease within two years, 80%. I was telling one of my colleagues in Seattle who took the test with me, and he had a score of 463. Guess what? He has cancer in his spine. So is death psychological? No. Are these diseases psychological? No. Are the result of sustained exposure to threat physiology? Yes. So if you picture your car on the side of the road, just sitting there, there's no symptoms. Let's say the car is missing a spark plug. There's still no symptoms. You have to turn the car on for the car to start missing. So let's say the car runs out of gas. Okay, well, it's sitting by the side of the road. It's not doing anything. So when the car runs out of gas, it stops. When the human body runs on energy and fuel, guess what? It doesn't function very well. So disease is a very dynamic process that's created by energy and movement. And my friend Bruce looked at me, it's somewhat of a crude analogy. He says, what's the difference between a cadaver and a living human being? It's energy. It's movement. Cadavers don't have symptoms. Humans do. And when Dr. Peabody in 1927 acknowledged this, and his lecture is so brilliant, by the way, I can put it on the show notes for you if you want. It's a five-page article. And his final words of the secret of care is caring for the patient. He didn't really understand the neuroscience back then, but he understood that if you if a patient didn't feel safe, 
with his or her physician, then your body was under fight or flight and created physical symptoms. So again, in modern medicine, we don't even have the ability to help our patients feel safe because we're actually persecuted by the big business for spending time with their patients. I just have to tell one quick story here. So I, we ran across, we have a work group that meets or a volunteer discussion group that meets twice a month with some of the top neuroscientists in the world. And there was a young resident who's just finishing up her pain fellowship and she loves the process. She's starting to see results with her patients. And so, by the way, I just want to say one thing. So I have my process called the DOC journey, which is one process. The bottom line is feeling safe. You get cues of safety, your body physiology changes, you have cues of threat, you develop physical symptoms. So she loves the process. She started to talk to her patients and she came to her group a few weeks ago and she was in tears and she had talked to her patient a little bit. We put the staff guy a little bit behind and he got really irritated and just chewed her out in front of the rest of the residents. She goes, what do I do? And same thing I mean, there are computer programs measuring the productivity of physicians, particularly surgeons, about, they call it throughput. What's my contribution to the bottom line? It's based only on profits. It's not based on outcomes. When hospital uses the term compassionate care, they're simply not telling the truth. It's not true. They're interested in the profits and the money. And I didn't used to think that way. I used to think, well, people are really trying to do their job. The problem is if you're an administrator, you're, you're really your job is the numbers. It's really you're detached enough from the patient care that your interest really is in numbers. And so there's a real disconnect in modern medicine between what we're responsible for, who we're answering to, which is now a bigger system, versus being responsible to our patients. And right now, I don't know how it's going to end, but people talk about the collapse of healthcare system. I will tell you unequivocally, it's actually already collapsed. And so you're just going to, you'll start to, it's like you watch a piece to start to fall into place or fall down, but it it has collapsed. And so burnout rate is 70% amongst physicians. Nurses are quitting. Um, we weren't providing great care in the first place. We were focused more on procedures than the patients. But right now, the system absolutely has collapsed. We're in trouble. Thank you for sharing that observation. It has been definitely heading in that direction for a number of years. And it seems that COVID may have also pushed it over the edge with the crisis of many healthcare workers being incredibly stressed and recognizing how stressful their own jobs are. And um, many occupational therapists I've spoken with who have talked to me and seek, have sought out advice for me to create their own practices. And I do see that that is a sign of that happening as well. Uh, I also have a family member who is dealing with Alzheimer's at the moment and the staff you know, they have these wander guards on people so that they aren't wandering outside. And the staff sometimes does not know that such turnover, they don't always know how to turn the wander guards off, or they don't actually have sometimes somebody staffing at the door. Well, Alzheimer's is a very interesting topic because it turns out that Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease are both chronic stress disorders. In other words, you're under fight or flight. And so we now know that, um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's are both inflammatory disorders. <clears throat> and what happens under the fight or flight, your body's looking for resources for fuel. And what it does actually robs fuel from every cell in your body, including tendons and ligaments, hence early degeneration. It also robs fuel from your brain. Your brain physically shrinks in chronic pain. So it turns out that dementia, 
Alzheimer's are actually inflammatory metabolic disorders. So again, same thing with autoimmune disorders. They don't just happen. Why would you have an autoimmune disorder? So again, it's that chronic inflammatory stress response that starts to tear down the tissues. So interesting enough about Alzheimer's, they did a study where um, you can actually improve your cognition. First of all, I went through this myself to some degree, is that when you're in chronic pain, you don't process as well, you can't think as clearly because your brain's sort of inflamed. And when you're on fire, the blood supply shifts from the thinking cortex called the neocortex down to the midbrain, which is the survival brain. And so you quit using the, ne- using the neocortex, it actually physically shrinks. So in chronic pain, i.e. anxiety, people's brains physically shrink. When you treat it, it actually re-expands. So we know with expressive writing, which is the first starting point, it can actually be a factor in actually reversing the process. So I don't know what point in Alzheimer's you, you cross the point of no return, but I did have a woman years ago who was told by her neurologist that she was getting dementia. And I'm going nonsense. And we talked about the loss of cognitive function and chronic disease. You're just consumed by your pain and suffering. And as you come out of it and re-expand it, you're structurally changing the structure, you're physically changing the structure of your brain. So it's been documented when you solve chronic pain, your brain actually physically re-expands. So we actually get onto the whole process of the expressive writing and different things we do to calm the nervous system down. And over the next year, her dementia, I mean, her, again, she was still very, very mild, but her cognitive function not only came back, it just exploded. And so it's about neuroplasticity. And we now know that the brain is stunningly neuroplastic, even with major stroke victims. Again, if you harness the power of neuroplasticity, it's unbelievable what the brain can do. The brain will adopt almost anything. An occupational therapist, I know Arlene Schmid, who has been doing some great research on yoga and the eight limbs of yoga, not just the physical asanas, found that people who had strokes, and these are, like I was taught in occupational therapy school, and maybe you were taught this too, is that people generally make the most gains at about six months to a year from their stroke. At least that's how we were taught years ago. And she has found that people are recovering, uh, even though they've maybe had their stroke 20 years ago, where they stopped getting gains, and then they started doing yoga with the meditation, the breath work, the physical asanas. So there we go with the lowering that stress response, probably creating more sense of safety. And these people are getting more gains in their lives that they thought that they weren't ever going to get again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I quit my surgical practice. The data shows that less than 20% of physicians are comfortable treating chronic pain and then less than 1% enjoy it. I mean, I can tell you, you take somebody without any hope and you watch them wake up and thrive at a level they never, never knew was possible, it's incredibly rewarding. And again, I'm not doing it. I'm teaching people skills to actually do it themselves. And again, it's a whole different discussion about the nature of how you solve the problem. But there's a sequence. Well, let me ask you, so I'm going to switch gears here just for a second. So I want to go back to anxiety for a second because it's a okay. big word. Okay. So let me ask you a question. As you've talked to me several times now about the word anxiety, have you been able to make that shift in your thinking about it being a physiological state, not psychological? Does that resonate with you yet? Because it takes some repetition to get there. Absolutely. I think that what a lot of you talked about, how many people talk about it being a psychological issue, I think that people talk about the perceived stress. 
that that can impact the physiology. Um, but I definitely am very much on board with that it's all one. The mind and the body are, are all one. So I have changed the terminology, by the way. So I don't think I talked to you about this before, but I've actually quit using the term mind-body because it implies there's a separation in the first place. So you can't fly a Boeing jet without a computer. That Boeing jet has about 2 million parts. You can't run a human body without a nervous system to, to communicate between the cells. So it's just a unit response. So there's 30 trillion cells in the human body. There's 80 billion nerve cells. Each nerve cell is connected to 10,000 other nerve cells. It's incredibly complicated. So your central nervous system is just a relay, relay station. It doesn't work without sensory input. So you have the central nervous system collecting in all the sensory input, you know, touch, taste, smell, your thoughts. All these things are being processed simultaneously. Again, it's 20 to 40 million bits of information per second. Then it sends out, in fact, most of the nervous system is input into the brain and about 20% is output. So your brain is processing all this input, then sending out signals of safety versus threat. So if it's safety, it's oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, anti-inflammatory cytokines used to calm down. It's called rest and regenerate. And you have to get there in order to have fuel to fight another day. You're not going to get rid of fight or flight. It's how we evolved. It's how we survived. So again, I want to use that word. Anxiety described the fight or flight physiology. No, we just call it an activated threat response. That's what anxiety is. So... Since it's processing so much input, it is not subject to rational interventions. So I'm going to ask you a rhetorical question, which you're not intended to get the answer for, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot. Okay, so anxiety is necessary for survival. It's powerful. It's not responsive to rational interventions. The more you try to fix it or fight it, the worse it gets. How do you lower anxiety? Well... I think that there are many methods that help to get the body into that rest and digest response. But ultimately, I think it's about being okay with the anxiety versus trying to fight it. That's a perfect answer. It's not the answer I was looking for, by the way, but it is a perfect answer. In other words, the way to go one step deeper, the way you lower the sensation we call anxiety is simply lower the threat response. So what you talked about are ways of doing that. But the, at the end of the day, whatever you do, whether you address the input, the nervous system, or the output, you simply want to minimize or lower the stress chemistry. So I'll just give you one little illustration that I use is that, first of all, you won't survive without it. So it's a gift. So if you fight it, it is going to get stronger, like you pointed out, but it's a gift. You have to learn to work with it. So I'm talking about developing a working relationship with it. So just visualize your thermometer on the opposite wall. And when you're feeling really agitated, why well, you just watch the thermometer go up and up. If you feel angry, it's even higher. And so again, to lower anxiety, simply lower the threat physiology. That's it. Now again, you can do this through the, again, dynamic healing. You have the input, the nervous system, and the output. You use portals in all three arenas all day long. And so once you sort of learn the skills of actually work, develop this work relationship with anxiety and anger, not trying to fight it, and you learn tools to nurture joy, This the, the answer to chronic disease, not just chronic pain, <clears throat> learns to efficiently processing the stress physiology and learning how to nurture joy through neuroplasticity. So a metaphor I like to use is that of a bathtub. 
And just picture a bathtub with the water coming in, being the good things in life. And the drain representing anxiety and anger. It's a huge drain. It's wide open. And we're taught to sort of suppress all this stress, suppress anxiety. Don't complain. Just move forward. But the drain's wide open. Suppressed stress is worse than expressed stress. So then we're doing these things in life, activities, accomplishments, adventures, all these things to distract ourselves from the drain being open, the anxiety and anger. But while the drain's open, you can't fill the tub. So there's two parts to healing, and both are critical. They're separate parts, but they're linked. So what you learn is tools look at anxiety and anger as physiological states. There are a lot of ways to simply plug in the drain, which you do multiple times a day. And when the drain stays plugged most of the time, then you can just enjoy your life. So that's what's exciting about the process, which gets me so inspired, is that you learn to plug the drain. And so, again, that's that 20 to 40 million bits of information per second. Then you get to live your life. You get to expand your consciousness. So the real healing occurs, and this is the work that you do, along with Jeff, is you expand your consciousness. You're, you're, you're developing new circuits. You're shifting on a pleasant circuit to actually stimulate rest and digest physiology. So the real healing occurs from moving into these new, more functional, enjoyable circuits but you can't do that until you let go of the old ones. You need to do both at the same time. So what happens is humans, we're geared to survive. We become experts at poor coping skills. I mean, I don't. we just model what we see. Society tells us what to do. We're told what to do. So we're really expert at dysfunctional coping skills. So you learn expertise in functional coping skills, i.e. plug in the drain. Then where... In our experience, maybe you're different than a lot of us, but where in our experience were we taught to nurture joy? Are you? <laughs> well, absolutely. It's that's what we all want is to feel joy, right? Joy and love and peace. Where, where, where do we learn how to? Where do we learn how to do that? So we're programmed by parents, society, teachers, peers. Everybody's telling us what's wrong with this and how to get fixed. And so, but remember, I have a little saying now that to. Have a good life. You have to live a good life. It's a practiced, learned skill. So you learn skills how to plug the drain, and you learn skills how to bring joy into your life. And you're not doing that to distract yourself. And that's what's so exciting about the project is that once people learn both of those sets of skills, they thrive at a level that never knew was possible. I mean, I have one gentleman who had 28 surgeries in 22 years. He's now been out of the hole for about seven years. And his point being, I've never felt better in my entire life, ever. That's even before he started having chronic pain. So that's after 28 surgeries in 22 years. I just did not think that was possible. Yeah, great work that you're doing. So you plug the hole, so create safety, and then you fill it up with goodness. Right. I mean, you can fill the bathtub up. Um, with whatever you want to do. So again, it's that filling the tub is where the healing actually occurs. And the other metaphor I use is like learning a new language is that the default language, of course, is survival, right? We're trained to do that. And one of my mentors has pointed out that we're all programmed by these negative voices in our head. We have lots of negative reinforcement. Don't do this. Don't do this. You know, do this to be a better person, et cetera. So our, our strongest programming is with their own self-critical voices and his point being, I'm not into positive thinking, which is a way which which got me in trouble in the first place. But there's this thing called positive substitutions. We start substituting more rational voices. And so I have a little mantra in my head is simply choose joy. 
I get really angry at you for some reason, I can stay angry in your negatives or say, hey, look, okay, do I want to really stay angry with you? Is me being angry with you helping my life? And by the way, it's not you that made me angry. You just triggered me. It's my responsibility to deal with my own anger. But just have a little mantra of just choose joy. And so what happens is you repetitively choose joy. It changes the structure of your brain. So again, instead of being, it's like learning a new language. You're not going to learn French by trying to fix English. You're not going to fix, you're not going to live this enjoyable life by trying to fix your old life. So you have to focus on learning French. You have to focus on learning how to live an enjoyable life. So it's a skill set that becomes stronger with repetition and it's not work. It's persistence and patience and repetition. And so if you learn to play piano at a high level and you enjoy playing the piano, it's not work to practice. Now, if you're forced to play the piano, then maybe not so much fun. But this is your life. I mean, do you enjoy, do you want to enjoy your life or not? And so I look at your life as a performance art or just as a performance and developing a skill set to maximize the performance of your life. So as you maximize and become more skillful at executing life skills, then you spend less time in fight or flight. So you can't fix your chronic pain, but you can learn to be more competent at living life, which minimizes your time in fight or flight. So you're saying that just thinking positive thoughts only just puts a Band-Aid over what's happening, and you need to do both. You need to be able to... Uh, release, suppress thoughts or feelings with, through the expressive writing, and then also essentially choose joy. Right. But again, right. But see, again, going back to the bathroom analogy, choosing joy doesn't plug the drain. Right? Exactly. Right. So that's yeah. why they're very distinct, separate skill sets, but they're also very linked. And so, yeah, and again, going back to the neuroplasticity model, again, if you start cultivating circuits in your brain that are enjoyable and pleasurable, um, they thrive. So people thrive at a level in every way possible. So for, for me personally, the last 10 years of my practice has been by far and away the most enjoyable part of my practice, watching people not watching people without any hope come out of the hole and also thrive. I mean, it's very energizing, very, very energizing that at least I could take part of my suffering and give it back somehow. That, that's been incredibly rewarding for me. Well, you're definitely leading the way. Do you see that other surgeons or medical doctors are getting on board in this area in healthcare? You know, it's really tricky. I know it's a hard question to answer because we're so programmed about the structural basis for pain that I would say that most physicians are really quite negative on this whole process. So people that are more open are the OTs, PTs, um, a lot of the, um, quote, alternative medicine, which I think is way more open than the mainstream medicine. Integrated medicine already does a lot of this. So the thing is about the process today, I'm not here to extol my wisdom because it's already there. I'm just, I mean, all this stuff the last, I mean, I would say in the last 12 months, I've had as many insights into this as I had the prior 10 years. I mean, the neuroscience behind this stuff is incredibly compelling what I get frustrated with, it just has not, re- it has not reached clinical care and mainstream medicine is flat out rejecting it. So I have a friend of mine who is a lead psychologist in a big group and he started using the principles in my book about four years ago. People started getting better. And, and you don't, again, this is not about managing anxiety. It's about solving it. And so as you start to see people get better, you people with phantom limb pain, we get rid of their limb pain. The pain disappears. Because your brain's in a different spot. I mean, you can reprogram wow. your brain around anything. 
So he, um, the word he used was toxic jealousy. Among these are fellow psychologists, by the way, and they turned him in. They turned him into administration to try to get him to lose his job because he was helping people get better. Yep, you can see the results right there. No risk, nothing, and very deeply documented in the neuroscience literature. And again, it doesn't help. I mean, uh, let's take expressive writing for instance. I mean, how much money is there to be made in having a patient do expressive writing? So I have a book in front of me. It's my hand right here. I think I showed this to you the other day about opening up by writing it down by Dr. James Pennybaker. There's over 1,250 research papers, well-done research papers documenting the effectiveness of expressive writing. So there's better athletic performance, student performance, decreases autoimmune disorders, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis. It also um, increases wound healing. So if you do a experimental punch biopsy and people who do expressive writing versus no versus don't, the people that do the expressive writing heal their wounds twice as fast. That is incredible. But it's the physiology. In other words, if you're in rest and digest, your body has stores to actually refuel and heal. If you're already in fight or flight, you now have the the additional stress of a of a um, you know of a to heal a wound. Um, and so it's getting about the body's physiology. So we know that the viral load in HIV goes down. Then we know that, I mean, the benefits of expressive writing changes the body's physiology. And I asked actually Dr. Pennybaker, who's the author, who's the original, um, you know, original um, researchers on this whole project. We asked him, well, why do you think this works? He goes, I don't know. I mean, we know it works. We don't know what the best type of writing is for a given person. Now, I did put together a little, little PDF looking about the different types of expressive writing, but it is the one mandatory first step of the healing journey. It's not the solution. Remember, the other principle is that chronic pain, i.e. anxiety, is complicated. And so it's always a multiple-pronged approach. So there's exercise, there's sleep, there's diet, and all those things lower inflammation. So we also put together another brochure on COVID called Plan A, is that the people that die from COVID actually have risk factors. Every one of those risk factors, including anxiety and depression, elevate the inflammatory markers. So we don't know if the cytokine storm is just a normal rise to an inflammatory process or it's with the pre-op, with the pre-illness inflammatory markers already being elevated. So the normal rise takes you over the threshold or it's a hyperactive threshold. Either way, Almost every person that has a mortality rate from COVID has risk factors that are inflammatory. So there's 12 categories of things you can do to actually lower inflammatory markers. We know with, with aging longevity research, that's all about lowering inflammation. There's a bunch of ways of doing that. So medicine is on an illness model. And what the COVID crisis has done is called out the fact that we are on an illness model. And a wellness model, by the way, is very doable, but it's a different profit. It's a different profit structure. You can make money off of keeping people well also. Then I've not read the article in detail, but Atul Gawande wrote an article about Costa Rica that actually over 25 years they did it. They went from an illness model to a wellness model. And what's happened in the United States, we have the highest death rate from COVID as any other developed country, but our medical system has become predatory. We're hurting people. We're not helping people. And so the highest risk people that actually need the help the most actually are not getting access to medical care. 
And we know that threat is a big problem. And threats, by the way, aren't just medical threats. In other words, you have societal threats like authoritarianism, poverty, lack of opportunity are all threats that our society has. So that threat also creates sustained fight or flight physiology. So my feeling is, is that physicians also have a responsibility to society to help get us well. That means dealing with societal threats. What can we do as physicians to help society be a safer, more safe place for people? Anyway, I could go on for a long time on that topic, as you can see. But we're on it. This illness model is really destroying our country. It's destroying our healthcare providers. Like I said before, the system is not collapsing. It has collapsed. Now, it probably be five years before it completely disintegrates. But, I mean, the COVID crisis is highlighted, which has already been a problem for many, many decades. Yeah. You mentioned a term, cytokines, and how that's related to inflammation. Can you describe that for us? What happens starting with evolution four billion years ago is that cell-to-cell communication occurs by these little molecules called cytokines. They're they're super small proteins. I think they're only eight or nine molecules long. And so every cell in the body throws off multiple cytokines. So fat cells throw off theirs, muscle cells throw off theirs, nerve cells throw off theirs. So it's the cell-to-cell communication that allows cells to communicate with each other. And as life became more complicated, you started developing more complex communication systems. So it turns out the nervous system is a very is still a connective tissue that allows communication between the nervous system and the rest of the body. But the communication still starts with cell-to-cell molecules with cytokines. So if you cut your leg, the body says trouble and sends off these cytokines, actually signal more cytokines to come into place. So you have inflammatory cytokines that precipitates an inflammatory response, which is healing short-term destructive long-term. And then in the healing phase, you have what's called anti-inflammatory cytokines, which actually promote healing and regenerations. So when those cytokines become too active, or maybe the normal activity, at a certain level of cytokines, your lungs become full of fluid, with inflammatory fluids. And they're also finding out that, for instance, with cardiac disease, they're finding out there's not so much cardiac muscle damage as is there conduction to the um, rhythm system. So again, all associated with these inflammatory cytokines. Long hauler syndrome is the same thing as other chronic diseases. It's sustained exposure to threat cytokines. You have the same threat that caused problems in the first place. Then you have the actual disease, which is a threat. Then you have the fallout of the disease, which is another threat. So what Dr. Nabio out of San Diego has pointed out that clear at the mitochondrial level, which are little engines of each cell, that you have a breakdown in healing cycle, that on, under ongoing threat, you cannot complete the cycle. So hence chronic disease. So that's why there's a common link for every chronic mental physical disease, clear down to the each cellular, each cell has the same dysfunction in chronic disease. I went ahead and did some expressive writing the other day based on your doc journey and your recommendations. And I have one, I'm one who has done some journaling in the past, but I, what I really was excited about doing it was that I could, had permission to rip up what I was going to write. And that I was given permission to just write with complete freedom, not censoring what I was writing and knowing that no one would read it. And I went ahead and did that. And it was very freeing to do that. I put a timer on for 15 minutes. And then I tore it up 
And it really did, you know, you mentioned that the thoughts can be like tables and chairs in our consciousness and that by creating distance, it can really shift how we are perceiving some of those threats. Dr. Lisa Feldman Baird out of New England is one of the top neuroscientists in the world. And it's the neuroscience of consciousness is that thoughts and concepts become embedded in our brain the same way as a chair or book or table or computer. So they become very concrete entities in our brain. And that's what humans have that other living creatures don't have. I mean, my cat can't look at that um, container and call it brown. There's nothing in her brain that says this is brown versus blue versus red. But for humans, those become embedded concepts that become our reality. So when I wrote my first book, I said, look, thoughts are real because they create these chemical reactions in our body. I was wrong. So your thoughts and concepts are your version of reality that's incredibly unique to each person. So it's called predictive model of coding. And again, you can't escape your thoughts. Repressed thoughts are even worse. But you said it really nicely is that you're simply separating from them. And the research is on um, writing down your deepest thoughts and feelings. By the way, the more bizarre and despicable a discussion these thoughts are, the more powerful the process. Because remember, if you're a well-intentioned individual, these thoughts are who you are not. So that's what's so crazy about the human brain is that we know when we try not to think about something, we think about it more. If you're a well-intentioned person, the chance of deciding this is thought is unacceptable is higher. So what turns out to be a crazy thought 30 years ago, you toss it aside and it comes back again. You toss it aside again. It's like a basketball on your finger. Each time you pay attention to it, either positively or negatively, you're spinning that basketball. So over 30 years of just getting rid of this crazy thought, it becomes your demon. Well, guess what? That demon is who you are not. Otherwise, you want to suppress it in the first place. And that's what's so ironic about the human existence. And again, it's called the ironic effect. The more you try not to think about something, the more you will think about it. But it's a neurological trick. And that's where my focus this year is on these obsessive thought patterns, which I'd like to talk to you about on, on another podcast. But we have an epidemic of people that are really, really frustrated and upset by these disturbing thought patterns. They're universal. You can't talk your way out of it. But there are some very simple ways of actually escaping from these things and moving on. That's why the expressive writing is not the solution by itself. But it is the only step of the healing journey that, that I have found out has been absolutely necessary. You can get better without it. But with my, I don't think I've seen a patient truly heal that hasn't done the expressive writing as a starting point. Yeah, and I'm a meditator. I teach meditation. I uh, That was an exercise that really, well, yes, I think that meditation does have its merits for sure. And mindfulness is great because it's something you can do seated, you can do it throughout your daily activities, and you can bring a lot of love and acceptance and compassion to yourself. But you're right, those thoughts that uh, run through our minds that we're not always aware of, or our frustrations, angers, uh, fears that we might have, or even pleasant feelings, being able to get that down and then to tear it up for me, I, it felt very freeing. Yeah, it is absolutely, I mean, I can tell within 10 seconds when I walk into a patient's room, if they start the expressive writing or not. I mean, it's very powerful. It, remember, after 15 years of being in everything, I was in chronic pain for over 15 years. I had tried everything, and it was the expressive writing. Actually, it was the first thing in 15 years that started my journey out of the hole. 
And I still do it. 50, you know, 20 years later, I still write three, four, five times a week. And if I quit doing it, like I mentioned before, within two or three weeks, these little skin rashes start popping up. So it's just the way the brain works. It's not, again, it's just like brushing your teeth or cleaning the lint out of a dryer. You just got to sort of just, you know, keep your brain sort of cleaned up a bit every day. And it's, of course, not very hard. But, um, yeah, it's a nice starting point. It's easy. It's, again, repetition is really, really key. And so, yeah, just a really good, solid, strong starting point. And, again, people will say, well, I, I'm doing my expressive writing and I still hurt or I still have anxiety. And I just keep reminding them it's just, it's just one step. So let me, let me review one big concept that we talked about earlier is that mindfulness works, cognitive behavioral therapy works, the writing works, relaxation works, meditation works, but none of them work in isolation. That's the key issue. So, okay, meditation is great, but what if you're not sleeping? So I say, look, you know, sleep might be 10%. The expressive writing anxiety might be another 30%. Chiropractic acupuncture could be another 10%. Exercise could be another 10%. So it's like fighting a forest fire. So the mistake we make in medicine is that chronic pain is complicated. It's complex. So we throw in a random simplistic solution of symptoms. It can't work, and it doesn't work. So the burden of chronic disease right now in the United States is almost $4 trillion a year, and it's getting worse. But we're still treating, again, anxiety is the problem. Pain is just one of the symptoms of sensory input. And again, painful thoughts are probably still the biggest problem that causes the problem in the first place for human beings. Mm-hmm. And again, there's a lot of data behind that also. But from my perspective, I'm not trying to give you a Hanscom philosophy. I challenge myself over and over again not to become attached to what I know because it blocks future learning. But every week we have our meetings, it just blows me away how much data there is. We keep adding layers and dimensions to it. And um, I have a whole bunch of other metaphors we can talk about at a future point in time. But once you get down to the really core basic stuff, once you get to the core principles, the solutions just aren't that hard. People might be listening right now and thinking, oh, my life is so challenging. There's so much stress in the world. There's Maybe even there's literally war happening. Um, are there any, is there anything else that you would be willing to share? What could you say to some of those folks who just feel like, uh, maybe even helpless? Well, I mean, you're legitimate. I mean, it is helplessness that you can't, I mean, that's a whole different topic, but I have a metaphor called the eye of the storm. <clears throat> and so what the process does, if you, if you just use the wind as a metaphor for your racing thoughts, which you can't control. And the wind also represents many circumstances of most of which you can't control. So what the tools do, they pull you into the center of the storm. And so what it does, it allows you to have the metabolic energy to actually deal with the problems that you can have control over. And of course, if you get upset about something you have no control over, you're just draining your energy. So yeah, the world's a tough spot. The world's always been a tough spot. I mean, think about living in the dark ages, for goodness sake. So human life is competitive. It's always been challenging, and it always will be. But there's ways of pulling yourself out of this. And by the way, the farther you come out of center, the faster the winds spin, right? So what the tools do, do they pull you in the center. Of course, you, get, you keep getting swept back into the wind. So you can pull yourself back into the center. Again, that's that plug-in-the-drain process. And so what happens is you learn the tools to stay in the center of the storm. Paradoxically, you have a lot more energy to actually solve the problems that you can solve. The other metaphor, which I thought was really fascinating, is a book called 365 Dow, an old book. And one metaphor that really struck me years ago 
was that of a heron standing in a small pond, shallow water, and waiting for a fish to go by. And the fish would come by, and the heron reaches down and picks up the fish and has lunch. Well, the message being that each one of us is responsible for what is in within our own sphere of influence. So this bird's not flying over like looking for food, just waiting for it to come to it, is hungry, solves its problem. So each one of us is responsible for what's within our own sphere of influence, with the first person, of course, being us. If each person can connect to what is and learn to calm themselves down, and what it does, as you calm down, as it really significant influence on people close to you, and so that's what you can control. And so, again, it's one of the learned skills of understanding that most things you can't control. You use tools to pull back from that. Again, this is what the expressive writing does, that you can't control your thoughts, but you're separating from them. And tearing it up, by the way, is really critical for two reasons. It's not to get rid of the thought. You're not going to get rid of them. But you can write with freedom and separate from them. But a bigger issue to tear them up is that when people write, they um, want to analyze your thoughts because all these issues are coming up. They're not issues. They're just thoughts. And so you write with freedom. You tear them up. The people that don't tear them up, by the way, just don't do nearly as well. So it's really critical to tear them up. Again, not to get rid of them, but if you start analyzing them, you're actually cementing them in your brain. Opposite effect. How much of a role do you feel spirituality plays with healing pain? Well, it's huge. I mean, that is if you look at my um, processes, both the doc journey and things I've done before, it's actually Actually, the ultimate answer to pain, because again, you have, to, you have to let go, plug in the drain, but the spirituality is the water coming in, right? So the farther you can get your, I mean, your spirituality is, of course, I define it in any different way you want. It can be church, religion, good food, good wine, good friends, whatever you describe that big perspective with. I mean, to me, the ultimate spirituality is just awe, that I just don't know what is out there. So, so I'm open to all possibilities. So as my mind goes into that perspective, that's a long ways away from anxiety and anger. So if you're trying to do the spiritual bypass part of it, that's a huge problem. So you have to feel to heal. That means you have to feel and let go. And then remember that we talked about earlier that the real healing occurs about moving into the circuits of your brain that are enjoyable with spirituality being a huge deal. So play, gratitude, giving back, all those things aren't academic exercises True spirituality changes your body's chemistry into true rest, digest, and regenerate mode. So, yeah, it's a huge, that is where we want to go eventually. You just can't do it without doing the other tools. Well, you have certainly been very healing, I think, for many people listening. Thank you for all that you've shared. You've been very healing for me in my journey in healthcare. And what you share really echoes a lot of what I've observed. And thank you so much for being a leader in this realm. Are there any last thoughts that you would like to share? with our listeners about healing pain? Well, it's about connection, about connecting to you, um, whatever's in there. And I do want to finish off with one final metaphor. I drive my wife crazy with all these metaphors. But, you know, all of us come, all of us have trauma in our past. I mean, I had an extreme amount of trauma, but so a lot of other people. I don't have a corner on suffering. Um, you know, with the childhood chaos, I don't, don't even include bullying as a trauma. And um, there's lots of life traumas that happen all of our life. And so what we do is we tend to try to rearrange it. We try to edit it. We try to fix it. We try to cover it up. 
And what I did with my being an accomplished sponsor, I, I tried to run from it. And so the bottom line is the metaphor to me is a tree. And so a tree needs to, for a tree to grow. I've always said for a long time, you have to dig deeper in order to grow higher. So consider the metaphor of a redwood tree, redwood tree, where it's got deep roots, but also communicates with other redwood trees to provide support for a grove of redwood trees. So what happens is that your past is a soil for growth. And by learning to be with your past, whatever it is, I mean, you can interpret it as good or bad, whatever it is, some of it's pleasant, a lot of it's unpleasant, much of it's pleasant, but the past is your fertile soil for growth. And so by digging in and being with it, again, not trying to analyze or fix it or cover it up, it takes a lot of energy to cover up that past and to rearrange the deck. So what happens is that as you use your energy to just dig in and be with it, then you have the, you have the energy to grow. So one of my more famous um, success stories, her name is Rita. Actually, um, she's in chronic pain for 55 years. Um, she's now been out of the hole for about at least eight years. She's now 85 years old. She came up with a word called nourishment. Instead of being nourishment, nourishment. And so the soil of your past is your nourishment for future growth. And so then there's no limit to your growth and there's no limit to your past. And you just get to be. And so it's really incredibly freeing. Um, I have probably triple the energy I had now when I had in high school. Um, I'm probably under more stress now in a way than I was when I broke years ago because I don't have the anxiety. I'm not in fight or flight all the time. And so I have my share of trials and tribulations, my share of stresses, but I just process them so differently that I'm thriving at a level I never knew was possible. And I'm really excited when I see all sorts of other people around me thrive at a level that they never knew was possible. So this is all doable. Pain, I'm going to use the word anxiety, is a solvable problem. And you just have to understand the problem. And it's just so solvable. So I'm, I'm very, actually, I'm very energized by this because I talked to a person this morning. She's in her thirties, has more money you can imagine. She's successful beyond words and she's completely tortured by anxiety. So we have a very inspiring and energizing conversation and I'll watch her over the next three to six months get better. So if you consistently want to retrain your brain, it's doable. Well, thank you for all of the inspiration. And I know that you do mention in your second book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? That there are some cases that people that where it might be beneficial. However, you're sharing that in most cases, it's not necessary. And also that it even translates over into other types of joint care. And like you have said, all, all aspects of, um, medical issues that can crop up for people. Yeah. No, it's the whole, the bottom line in the spine surgery books, it just takes two, two factors. One of them is, um, what's the anatomy? Is it amenable to surgery or not? And the other one that's actually more important, what's the state of your nervous system? So by looking at those two variables, it's very clear who should or should not have spine surgery. So by the way, so we have a process called the DLC journey, direct your own care journey. It's an online course that takes you through the sequence of understanding the problem, letting go, and then moving forward. We also have an app called the Doc Journey app, which again is um, educational, but also intended to create the experience of playfulness. And so that's also been very effective. I did write the book Back in Control, um, which has its own website. 
And so if people really want to move forward, I do recommend look at the book, Back in Control, just give you a framework or background. It's not a self-help book. It's just a framework. And then whether you decide to do the doc journey or the doc, the course or the app, either one will take you to an action plan. So you're not going to learn how to play golf by reading a book. You get to practice, right? Same thing here. There's a skill set to learn with repetition. And it hit me really hard this last few weeks as I edited, edited the doc journey is that people that engage and learn the tools heal. People that don't learn the tools don't heal. But it's very, very consistent process. It's just the way the brain works. And so obviously, as you can tell, I'm very energized by this whole process. You're helping a lot of people. One of my best friends, Naomi, who's a physical therapist, has kept a stack of your book back in control in her office and um, requires that all of her patients read it because she found that her patients do better when they engage in your great exercises. Dr. David Hanscom, thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today. I'm so glad to have you with me. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm.